Sunday afternoon sermon series. We're going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, of course. And two weeks ago, I showed you that the word catechism is a scriptural word that comes from the Greek word katecheo, which means to teach or to instruct. And that word is often used to refer to um, teaching of the basics of things, of the in the case of uh, in the Bible, teaching the basics of the Christian faith. And they would catechize people when they were new Christians to, uh, to ground them in the faith. It's interesting because in the time of the apostles, they would baptize people and then catechize them in the basics of the faith. And then later on, the church started catechizing people first and then baptizing them. And of course, there has to be a, a basic understanding but we have examples like the Philippian jailer that was baptized on the very night that he first was exposed to the gospel. And I think we need to, to think that through, that how we practice that. As soon as someone is ready to profess their faith, they should be go, we should go ahead and receive them if we follow the, the way of the apostles in the New Testament, rather than switching that around and having a long teaching process. No, then, we, then we do the the, the teaching and the basics as they, as they come along. So, that, so something to think about. But this whole idea, you know, take, take the Thessalonians, that we, we studied that epistle recently. They, they came to faith and then Paul was, and they were received into the church and then Paul was eager to go and catechize them. Remember how he sent Timothy to do that. So it's a very important thing. No matter how long you've been a believer as well, it's always very helpful to go over the basics again. And each time you do, you can deepen your faith. Because all these truths, like you hear, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, that means something to you as a new Christian. It should mean a lot more to you after you've walked with Christ for a number of years. So as we go over these, these basic doctrines, we'll be receiving them different levels of our understanding. Very, very precious things. Uh, last week... We began with question one of the Shorter Catechism, and we saw that this question asked us what we as human beings ought to have as our primary purpose, what we ought to live for, what we ought to live to do. Now, in reviewing that, I'll ask the question, and then you confess it. We'll, we'll do the first question as well as the second one today in that time. So question one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We don't need any special revelation to know that that's something we ought to do. That we're here for God. God made us. There is no other reasonable explanation for our being. And this being so, we are here for Him. That's why we know from the very nature of things created, unless we suppress the truth, that it's obvious that we ought to glorify the one that created us and that we ought to find our happiness in him. There's no greater being. He's the source of all the, the beauty and the good things that we see. He's the designer, the provider, producer of all of those things. And so he's the one that we go back to as the fountain and source. The things that have corrupted, you see, that came from God's hand, good and lovely, and they're corrupted by our sin and turning away. But what we don't know, we know that we should glorify God and enjoy Him just, just from being here. Again, except we, we, we distort it, but we know that we, something we should know. But what we don't know 
is how we ought to go about glorifying and, and, and uh, enjoying God. We need him to direct us to know how to do that. This week's question, question two, addresses that. So let's confess this question together. Question two, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Now, first, let me establish the fact that we need God to tell us how to glorify and enjoy him. It's not something we just know from nature. We are mere creatures and he is our creator, so we need him to direct us. He made us so that we would know that he is our God and that we ought to serve him. We all have a sense as well of right and wrong. Okay, that's something that's built into us. He also gave us some basics that he did reveal to us. It was necessary for him to reveal to us right from the very beginning of our existence. For instance, he instituted marriage right there in the garden. He also told us to bring forth children to fill the earth, that that was something he wanted us to do. He told us to subdue the earth, meaning that we would take the things of the earth and bring them into service of blessing for one another. We were to manage and to oversee the earth. We were given dominion, and we were to use it in ways that would would bless each other. So he gave us a lot of things right there in the beginning that he revealed. This is my will for you. He also told us to keep the seventh day holy to him, a day of worship and blessing for us, enrichment in our relationship with our God. Besides all of this, he established a covenant with us. He gave us a promise of life, of ongoing life, if we continued serving him as our God. There was a tree that represented that, the tree of life. And he told, but he told us that if we rejected him to go our own way, then we would surely die. We rejected him and we became dead in our trespasses and sins. And we basically brought corruption upon ourselves and received God's curse. So, okay, we needed direction, you see, to tell us how we could glorify and enjoy God even before we fell. God gave us those things that I just mentioned. How much more did we need direction after we fell? Okay, if we needed it to know and glorify Him and, and enjoy Him before creation, I mean, before the fall, how much more after? We need Him to tell us how we can be restored to Him, how to be saved from our sin, if such a thing was even possible. That was even offered. We, we, we wouldn't know that. Would God save us? He, he didn't have to. We, we rebelled against him. He could have just left us to go our own way. We know that he, re, we, we know that he redeemed us, his purpose to redeem um, a people for himself because he told us so. And we can't know how he has redeemed us or how we are to receive his redemption by faith in Jesus Christ. We wouldn't know that unless he reveals that to us. So special revelation is essential. That's why we need God to speak to us. And if we are, once we are restored to him, then we need him to clarify what has become fuzzy to us because of our sin. Even after we're redeemed in this world, we still have remaining corruption. 
So he needs to clarify, for example, what is morally right and wrong. I mean, real simple things. <laughs> like, like, don't have other gods before me. Don't have other gods besides me, is really what that means. Remember the Sabbath day. I appointed this day. You need to remember it. Okay? You shall not commit adultery. God instituted marriage. You're, not, you're supposed to stay together. The man and the woman. That, and, and the commandments repeat things, you see. All of them repeat things that you should already know. But we become fuzzy. And so God spells it out for us now because we need that. That's part of his revelation that he gives to us. And he needs to reveal simple things about himself, about who he is. His attributes, his holiness, power, justice, his goodness, his mercy. I was thinking about how when you're reading in the Old Testament, you know, and you read along, and you come to those passages like in Isaiah where, woe to Moab, woe to Edom, woe to Ammon, woe to... And it's just chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. Why do we have that? I mean, how do, why, why do we need those chapters? We need those chapters because we forget that God's a judge and that he's holy and that he's going to judge the nations. And so he's put that in the, in the revelation that we have to clarify to us what we become fuzzy about, what we try to forget. And we need a clarification about who we are, about our present condition now as sinners, about the penalty of sin, about his, the rescue that we have and what condition we are in when we're rescued, about our destiny, the hope that we have, where's it going to go? His word helps to clarify these things that a lot of them that we ought to know already. Some of them we can't know already. And we need to know how he wants to be worshipped by us. How can we possibly know that unless he tells us? I mean, if I have somebody come over to my house, you know, somebody's kind of a special person or something, and I'm going to ask them, you know, what kind of music? Would you like to hear music? Would you like, I'm going to ask them some questions. Or when people come over to eat with us or something, you know, do you, what foods do you eat? What do you, we want to know. He, he warns us in places like Deuteronomy 12 not to look at how the other people worship their gods and then say, I'll worship God like they do. That's a great way to worship God. No, he tells us that he wants to be worshipped the way he wants and that we're to listen to what he says. We need his word then to tell us that. He needs to tell us that is what I'm saying. Obviously, this instruction can't come from ourselves. It has to come from God. We need him to instruct us about how we may glorify and enjoy him. And especially now that we're fallen into sin. Now let's look at how God has gone about speaking to us and instructing us what method has he used to tell us how we may glorify and enjoy him well at first he spoke to us in all sorts of different ways okay it says in hebrews 1 1 through 3 it sets up the how god spoke to us in different ways it says god who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And it goes on talking about him. So you see how God started out. Think about it. He started out speaking to individual patriarchs, didn't he? People like Noah or Abraham. 
And you see, that was a perfect way to communicate his truth that people needed to hear because God's grace, his salvation, the church was really brought to one family at that time, more or less. I mean, there were other people that were kind of around the edges and servants and things like that. But that one patriarch would be the depository of God's truth. And then he could bring that to his family. And that's how God did in the very early stages when his grace was was being brought into the world. And then after that, we have a whole period where there are prophets with writings. Okay? As the church grew to become a nation, God sent Moses who received revelation for all the people in the wilderness. This was fine for the wilderness when they were all together because Moses could call them all together and say, okay, this is what God said. And then the, the leaders would come, the elders, and then they would go and tell all the people. They, he couldn't speak to all of them at once, but that's how they, they kind of worked. They were all right there together and it, you know, it was a great method. So the Lord had Moses commit, because, but when they came to the land, then they were going to be scattered out more. And God had Moses put in writing those prophecies and of his will so that they could have a record of it and the different places where they went so that they would know God's directions of how to glorify and enjoy him. This had the additional benefit of preserving the prophecies through the ages because sometimes the people would turn away from God. And when they wanted to turn back, when another generation came along and they realized how wrong they had been, and maybe God sent someone to call them back, then they could go back and say, okay, how does God really want to be worshipped? We've been doing all these crazy things. What does the Word say? And they could go back to that. What does it say about who God is? And they would go back to that, and they would realize, wow, we've been so wrong. How does he, what is His will for our lives? How we are to live morally? Additional revelations came through the ages by prophets that were sent to the church, often to correct them, but also to tell them about the coming of Christ, about the salvation that God had promised. Sadly, the people often rebelled against the real prophets and accepted false prophets and listened to them. But the prophets who were rejected and killed, it was kind of ironic, they were the ones whose prophecies ended up in the Bible. (laughs) How did that happen? Well, in God's remarkable providence, it always happened because it was their writings that came true. Like Jeremiah said, hey, you know, you guys, God is not going to be merciful to you this time. You're going to go into exile because of your sins. And the other prophets said, oh, no, 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 no. God promised to look after his people. God's going to be good to us. He's going to do all these good. Everybody said, we like those prophets. Jeremiah was over here, the only one that was saying the other thing. So then he got cut off. And they tried to, you know, they put him in a pit and most of the prophets were executed. And then all the things that he said happened. And so then the next generation said, oh, Jeremiah was the one that was speaking for God. So whose words ended up in the Bible? Jeremiah's, Isaiah's, all the ones that were speaking the truth. That's the way that God, isn't it marvelous how God works in his providence to preserve his word and to bring it to us so that we have what is the word of God instead of all those false things getting getting mixed in. I mean, he might have just dictated the writings with his own hand. He did that with Ten Commandments. He could do that if he wanted to. But uh, but yeah, God, God works in more interesting ways than that, doesn't he? 
<laughs> he uses the, the, the dynamics of, of, of life like this. Uh, then there were, was a 400-year period. Okay? So various times, various ways, he spoke to our fathers in time past. There was the 400-year period after the Old Testament Scriptures were complete when there were no prophecies. Only the written Old Testament Bible. When Malachi spoke, he indicated that he was the last prophet until the coming of the forerunner of Christ. Elijah, who would come, one who would come in the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist, uh, would come and preach of the coming of the Lord. During the four centuries then that followed Malachi, the books we call the Apocrypha were written. But those who wrote these books didn't claim to be writing scripture. They didn't say, thus says the Lord, the Lord said to me. And the Jews did not recognize those books as anywhere is equivalent to the Holy Scriptures. And so the church did not receive those writings as Scripture. There's some branch of the church that did years later, centuries later. But um, during that 400 years, it was God's will for His people to have as their only rule a written book of His revelations. Old Testament book of, that God had revealed. Interesting pattern there, isn't it? Okay, but then, as Hebrews says, at last, after speaking all those various ways, God spoke to us by his son. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 again. The prophet John, John the Baptist, broke the silence announcing the coming of Christ. Jesus Christ then carried out his ministry before 12 witnesses whose task it was to tell the world all that Christ had said and done that we needed to know, everything we needed to know about Christ. As the Apostle John says in his first epistle, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So Paul then was added as well to those 12 apostles uh, as an apostle to the Gentiles with specific revelations from God and a specific task in the first century of revealing how the gospel applied to the Gentiles, those who were not Jews. See, Jesus didn't really talk about that specifically when he was on the earth. So there was a special apostle to the Gentiles to lay that foundation. Paul claimed to receive his revelation directly from Christ, and the original apostles recognized him and his writings as true prophecy. They didn't say, well, who's this guy? All the apostles gave him the right hand of fellowship, we're told. And uh, in uh, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, Peter referred to Paul's writings as things that, uh, he said people sometimes get things mixed up in the scripture, and he referred to Paul's writings as among the scriptures. So as they were coming forth from Paul's hand, they recognized Paul's writing scripture. Of course, Peter knew that he was writing scripture too. So God's revelation to us comes to a culmination and a completion with Christ and what the apostles revealed about him. Okay, he is the final revelation concerning God's redemption. 
So in these last days, it says in Hebrews 1, God has spoken by his son. So how does God's revelation then come to us today? Where is it to be found? Today, God's revelation comes to us once again, as it did after Malachi until the coming of Christ, in a book, in the Bible. It's just like it was after Malachi. And the Old Testament was complete. No more prophets came. They had written the word that was now complete, and now it's been done again. Christ has been revealed. No more prophets. God had the apostles put what was revealed to them about Jesus in writing. Again, the apostles were quite conscious. I want to really make sure you understand that, that they were giving us the word of God. It wasn't as if they wrote. This is how a lot of people present it. That's why I want to make sure you understand this. A lot of people say, oh, you know, these guys were just writing letters to people in the churches. And then later on, people said, oh, you know, this was written by Peter. This was written by Paul. And they start saying, this is the word of God. This is scripture. No, they knew it right from the beginning. They knew that they were hearing from someone who was bringing God's word to them. How do I know that? Because they say so. What I said about 2 Peter a while ago, where he says that he refers to what Paul writes as what belongs with the other scriptures. Peter also explained that the prophecy that he wrote was not just his private opinion. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, he said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Peter wasn't just looking at what happened saying, hmm, what does that mean? I think it means, and then start writing it down. No, he says the, the interpretation was given by God so that what he wrote was the word of God. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Clearly, they knew that they were bringing the word of God. They knew that the and the churches knew that this was the word of God, just as the faithful knew who sat under the prophecies of the Old Testament. When the prophets said things like, thus says the Lord, they knew they were speaking for God. Having God's revelation in a book is even more important now that now than it was in the time of the Old Testament. Why? Well, it was just one nation then, one language. We saw how it was important for Moses to write so that the people would have the word of God when they were spread out in the land. We saw how God worked in such a way that his true prophets were the ones whose writings went into the permanent record and how this preserved his revelation from one generation to the next and allowed for reformation. When the people had gone astray, they could go back and consult what is the will of God by looking at his word. But now that Jesus has come, think about what a mess we would be in if we didn't have a written record, if it was all just by word of mouth. I mean, I guess, you know, God could, of course, in his providence, work through that if that's how he chose to do it. But he didn't choose to do that. And what a difference it makes. Having it in writing enables us to carry it to different nations and then to translate it so that everybody has the same source of the original word that is, is given to us. And it makes it so that, again, uh, as before, when, 
when things go wrong and the church starts to, to distort the truth, we can go back and look at the Word. And we can see, what does the Word say? And we can have reformation. We can return to the Lord. Just like they did with Josiah and Hezekiah. They, they went back to the Word. And then they returned to the way of doing what God had revealed. We live in a privileged time because we now have the complete revelation of God about salvation in a book, all contained in a book for us. After the apostles finished giving God's revelation about Jesus to us, there was no more need for prophets because God's revelation was final. We have God's word in our hands. We can consult it ourselves. This is one reason that Christians have always made literacy a a priority. We want our children to be able to read so that they, especially so they can read God's word. What a grand thing it is then that God has spoken to us through a book, how we should cherish that book and how we should hang on to what it says. He has given it to tell us how to do the most important thing of all. What's the most important thing? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How do we know how to glorify God? Because he's given it to us in his word. Let's look at some of the outstanding characteristics of the Bible. First, that it's God-breathed. We're told this in 2 Timothy 3.16. We're going to look at verse, that verse and verses around it quite a bit here. Uh, we're told this in, first, in 2 Timothy 3.16, which begins with the words, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. In the original language, the words given by inspiration of God are one word in, in the Greek language. It's a single word. Theonustos. So it's really a compound word, but theos is God, and then nustos, breathe, like breath. So it's, it's, the, it's God breathed is a literal rendering of that word. This means that we should look at the Bible. Is God actually speaking to us? What happens when somebody speaks to you? Their breath comes out, right? We speak, we breath comes, the words come out in in our breath. It should be received with reverence as God's voice to us. It is God-breathed. We saw earlier how Paul and Peter saw that they spoke and wrote not their own words, but the word of God being carried along by the Holy Spirit when they spoke and wrote for God. They wrote in their own style, but God guided them in such a way that they wrote that what they wrote was just what God wanted us to to hear, what He wanted to say to us. So what they wrote was God breathed. He is that intimately involved in the process in His wonderful providence. That leads us to the next characteristic: that the Bible is authoritative. That means that it can tell us what to do. And even what to breathe, to believe, because it's God speaking. It's authoritative because its author is God. Word author is in the word authoritative, authoritative. It is his word, so it carries with it his authority. Paul commended the Thessalonians for receiving it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God that effectively works in those who believe. It's not right to question the scripture's authority. We can ask, what does it mean? But by what authority would we question whether it's right in what it teaches? If, God, if it's God's word, 
what authority are you going to say to bring to judge the word of God and say, oh, that's that's not right. That commandment shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be like that. What judgment is going to stand over God, the creator? Of course, we will have to explain to unbelievers that it's the word of God. And we'll have to explain things that they don't understand. And societies get distorted about what's right and wrong. And we take and impose those things that we think are right and say, oh, look, the scripture's wrong. But then a few generations go by and the society changes. And then there's something else they think is wrong. And those things they think are right. It goes, it goes back and forth all the time. But the, we don't judge the word. It has authority over us, not us over it. Third, the Bible is pure. That means that it's all God's word. You know, if you have something that's pure gold, it means it's not mixed together with a bunch of other impurities. It's all gold. It's all gold. Everything in it is, is gold if it's pure gold. When we speak of God's word as being pure, we mean that it's, that it's not as if some verses are God-breathed and other ones came from man. And we have to go through and kind of highlight, okay, this one looks like it was from God. That one's not from God. That's the way some of the modernists uh, look at Scripture. Peter said that, that none of it was by private interpretation of the prophet. But holy men were carried along by the Spirit. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, what does it say? All Scripture is God-breathed. Not some of it, here and there. All of it. So it's not like just the words of Jesus were God-breathed, but the other ones weren't. Or just when the prophet said, thus says the Lord, that those were God-breathed. Of course, that doesn't mean that the Scripture doesn't record truly for us as part of God's Word when somebody says a lie, but it doesn't record it as truth in the Scripture. Like it will say that the lying prophet said, peace, peace, when there was no peace, or something like that, telling us the truth about what the lying prophet said. We refer to this feature as verbal plenary inspiration, that the purity of the word, that it's all God's word. Plenary means all of it, okay, every bit of it. And verbal means that right down to the very words that are used, so that the prophets didn't just summarize what God showed them, but God guided them right down to the very words that were used, and even the letters that were used. Fourth, the Bible is infallible and without error. Infallible means that it cannot be wrong. It's incapable of being wrong because it's God-breathed. And that it's without error means that there are no mistakes in it. For example, when historical details are given or when names are mentioned, the Bible gets it right. It's really remarkable how many times those who don't accept this have supposed that they found mistakes in the Bible, later to discover that they were the ones who were mistaken. A lot of examples we could use, but one of the ones that I tend to remember and sometimes use to illustrate is uh, one that I uh, actually just uh, learned of this one when we were going through Acts the last time we went through it in a church. It's Acts uh, thirteen seven, when uh, Luke uh, was thought to have made an error. It was a small error, but he said that uh, when they went, when Paul went to Cyprus, that Sergius Paulus was the proconsul of Cyprus when Paul and Barnabas visited the island. And well, you know, the historians came along and said, whoa, 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 Luke got that one wrong because they didn't have a proconsul. They had another kind of government. 
And we know this because look at these documents. We've got historical records. They had a different kind of government. They didn't have a proconsul. So Luke made a little mistake. Some people say, well, the Bible has some mistakes and stuff like that. And not, it's not true. It doesn't have mistakes. It's without error. And what do you suppose happened? Well, every time the archaeologists go out, you know, and they're digging around with their shovels and they, they turn up something and then it confirms something else in the Bible again. That happened. They found a Stella. And what did it say? It said that the government of Cyprus changed so that they had a proconsul. And when did that happen? It was a time when Paul and Barnabas were there. So then they looked at their historical records that said it had a different kind of government. That was true. But now they had verification that the government had changed. And they did have a proconsul after all. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Many other examples could be given. There were kings that they said that were mentioned in the Bible that never existed. We've got no record of it. And then they would dig up record. Oh, he was a co-regent with this other king. Oh, okay. And then kind of quiet about it and go on their way. Okay. <laughs> so whatever ones they have now, like they come up with, they'll be, they'll be uh, brought to light in time. Fifth, the Bible is very useful. In Romans 10, 17, Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God uses especially the preaching of the word preaching of the Holy Scriptures to bring people from death to eternal life. Isn't that marvelous? That he uses a book with his spirit working and frail men expounding that book that brings people to life. And then once we've come to believe in Christ, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16 specifies some of the particular ways that the word is useful. Here Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 15, From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So it brings faith to save to children. It nurtures them up in the faith so that they can grow up in the faith. And then he says, verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or God breathed as we saw before, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now we'll have more specifics about this later. But doctrine, next week we'll be looking at more specifics about what it teaches. But, but just briefly, doctrine, it shows us what we need to know about God and such things as we talked about before. For reproof, it shows us what's wrong with us. It knocks us down. <laughs> You're wrong. And, and, and then correction stands us back up again in what is right. And then for instruction in righteousness, it shows us how to live in a godly way, to live in a way where we do what? Glorify and enjoy God. And then lastly, the Bible is fully sufficient. In the next verse, 2 Timothy 3.17, Paul adds the words that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The man of God is the preacher. You can see in the very next verse, which is in chapter 4, Paul begins to exhort Timothy about being a preacher. So he says that the man of God may be complete, saying that the man of God might be completely furnished, have everything that he needs. Where from? From the word of God. So he doesn't have to go and study uh, a bunch of things outside the scripture because he has all the truth of God in the scripture. He doesn't have to go across the sea or up in the sky or down in the depths. He's got the Word of God, and He brings that out. 
because he has everything complete revelation of how we may glorify and enjoy God. That word that's used there that uh, is translated thoroughly equipped or thoroughly furnished or different ways. Uh, I've told you this before many times in preaching that that's a word that was used when you were getting a ship ready, getting your stuff together to go out to sea. And the reason that's such a good illustration is because when you were going out to sea, you had to have everything that you needed. You cannot stop by the corner store to pick something up. You've got you, what you have, you have. If you left something back, you can't, you can't get it. So this is telling us we've got everything that we need in the Scriptures. That's where God's revelation is given to us. That brings us to the last point. Don't make anything else your standard for how to live for God's glory. Let's look at some examples of things that we must not put in the place of Scripture or make equivalent to Scripture. You must not make the church your rule in place of the Bible. The church has much to do with the Scriptures. It was the church's head, Jesus Christ, who gave us the Scriptures. His Spirit speaking through all the prophets of the Old Testament and the prophets and apostles of the New Testament that wrote the Scriptures so that they could tell us about Jesus, about His salvation, everything that we needed to know of His will for us. The church is now the depository of the Scriptures. We've been given the Scriptures to, to, guide, to, to guide us and, and to keep the Scriptures. And so it's the custodian of the Scriptures. We, we take care of the Scriptures. We, we translate them and we pass them along. They're preserved by the church from one generation to the other. We have our forefathers that handed us the Bible and we'll hand it on to the next generation. The church is also the propagator of the Scriptures, the, the agent that God has appointed to carry the Scriptures to the nations that they might hear the Gospel. So the church is to apply them to herself, to practice them, and to hold herself accountable to believe and obey them that she might know how to glorify and enjoy God. So if there are teachings or practices in the church that are not based on the Scripture, it's our duty to follow God's Word instead of the church. The church goes wrong if she tries to add to them or take away from them. To do this is to usurp the place of our glorious head, Jesus Christ, who has revealed, who has revealed His will through His appointed apostles and prophets. Severe warnings are given to anyone who adds or takes away from the Scripture, whether we add traditions or whether we come up with innovations and make these equal to what is written, then we wrongly put ourselves in the place of God. What is God-breathed, we take what is not God-breathed and set it up with what is God-breathed. Not a good thing to do. So we can judge the church based on the Scripture. The church is not infallible the scriptures are infallible. Every age of the church existence, of its existence, there have been errors. Moses had opponents even while he lived. And of course, so did Jesus Christ. So much so that when he came, they rejected him. 
because he contradicted their traditions and they crucified him. Consider what they did to the reformers when they returned to the Bible as the only rule of how we may glorify and enjoy God. They reviled them and persecuted them and said all manner of evil against them falsely for Christ's sake. The way to tell who is on track and who is not is to consult the Scriptures. That's the standard. That's the rule of faith and obedience. Second, you must not make the world your standard instead of the Bible. Sometimes we can feel a lot of pressure from the world about how we ought to live, that we ought to support certain things. Like right now, it's very popular. We should support, if you're going to be with it, with the world, you should support abortion and gay marriage, this kind of thing. Or that we ought to look after our own interests first. That's sometimes a a tenet that the world holds. This is what you need to do. And that religion is fine as long as it doesn't take precedence over something like sports. You know, I mean, if you're on a ball team, it's more important to go to the game than it is to go to worship God. That we need to wear certain kinds of clothing, even if they're immodest, or we won't look good. That we should enjoy sex with people that we're not married to, that, that that's a good thing to do, that that's the right thing to do, and we shouldn't be restricted in that way. The world does not direct us in how to glorify and enjoy God. It directs us in how to live for ourselves. To live not as those seeking to glorify God, but as those getting what we want, doing what we want instead of what God wants. John says so in 1 John 2, 15-17. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because they're not doing what the Father is. They're not doing His will. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, it's your appetite, stuff you want, the lust of the eyes, what looks good to you, and the pride of life, your own honor, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. It's not going to last. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So the world has great advice about how to get on for yourself. But if you follow it, you'll die because we were made to live for God. So instead of doing what you want, what looks good to you, what promotes you, the word teaches you to live for God's glory and to find your joy in him. The scriptures are our only rule, the standard by which we live. So don't let the world come and try to dictate to you. We have the word of God. Go by the word of God. That's what will last. Third, you must not follow your own heart instead of the Bible. Some people will evaluate everything by their own heart. Live according to what they feel. You know, you just have to go by what your heart tells you. Ever hear people say that? Oh, you know, in my heart, I just felt that this is what I needed to do. But your heart is not a safe guide. What does Jeremiah say about it? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's a great guide. We've got the word of God. Who can know the heart, it says. But this is a little tricky because how can you follow God's word unless you believe it in your heart? Does the Bible say that we believe in our heart, the Lord Jesus? So are we not then following our heart? Well, no. What we're doing is our heart is bearing witness with the word of God that the word of God is true. So we're embracing that in our heart, but we're not following our heart. The Bible confronts 
what is often in our heart. Our heart is renewed and transformed when we submit to the Word of God instead of the desires of our own heart. To give an example, very, very, very common example that we have today, our heart might tell us that God would never send anyone to hell. You ever hear people say that? I could never serve a God like that. Oh, I don't think God is like that. No, 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 no. God couldn't be like my, my heart. No, I know, I know in my heart, God's not, He would never punish anyone forever. That's not the way God is. The Word of God says that He does do that. And God's Spirit works in us so that we can accept that in our heart. And then we realize when we do accept it, what happens? We realize that God's love and mercy are actually greater than we ever thought. Because he redeems people that deserve to be punished forever. What I talked about this morning. That's an example of how the scripture renews our hearts. Now I go, God, he didn't just save people that were a little bit messed up. He saved people that deserve to go to hell. And Jesus bore their punishment for hell. Now my understanding of God in my heart is changed from that very deficient understanding that was in my heart when I said, oh, God would never do that. That, that misses it. Finally, you must not follow private revelations instead of the Bible. A lot of people want God to tell them things directly. You know, we've, we've, we've got the Bible here, but I want to have like a pipeline where God tells me stuff. And then I, I can listen to that instead of, to the Word of God. I know two young men that, uh, they're not young anymore, but they were young at the time, that both had a pipeline idea from God that he had told them that it was his will for them to marry a particular young lady. Each of these men, not the same one, they, they, this happened at different times. But these men, God showed me, he told, you know, he showed me this woman was the one for me. And, you know, they had all their, their reasons how God had showed them this and all of this. And God didn't show the young ladies. So neither one of them wanted to marry these guys. But this was actually a very tragic thing. Because these men, both of these men left the faith. Largely over that, their disappointment. It was as if God, they couldn't trust God because he had misdirected them. But you see, they were getting direction from a source that wasn't really God. God's only rule is his word, not our pipe, some pipeline that we have to God. They were looking for private revelations when God reveals himself through the scriptures today. Doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for wisdom. But it means that if we think of a wise course and a good course and a righteous course, it's according to the scriptures, that we shouldn't say, this is the will of God that he has shown me that I'm to do for him. Because we don't know that. We don't know. We need to say, I believe this is a good thing for me to do. I believe it pleases God for me to do this. But we wait and see what he's going to do with it. We're not to look to direct guidance from God like that. Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians for claiming to have prophecies that contradicted the commandments that he had given them as an apostle. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. He said, the things that are right to you are the commandments of God. So if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet, then receive the things that are right to you as the commandments of God. 
Because what Paul was writing was the commandments of God. And that's how we need to look at it. The Word of God always trumps anything that we claim to have as some private revelation. So the Catechism is quite helpful when it states that the Word of God, which is contained in the Scripture of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. How we should thank the Lord for speaking to sinners like us and showing us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. See that you cherish the Scriptures. See that you live according to the Scriptures. As the Lord told Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Please stand and let's pray. Lord, our Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, for speaking to us. We thank you, Lord, that you spoke to us in various ways at various times. And that in these last days, you've spoken to us by your son. And that now we have a sure word of prophecy concerning him contained in the book that you have given us in the Holy Scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that we would cherish these writings as the very breath of God, as God breathed, and that we would consult them, that we may know how to glorify and to enjoy you. Father, we thank you that the scriptures are pure, that they are complete and sufficient. We thank you that they're clear and understandable, useful to us, to guide us and instruct us. Lord, I pray that we would cherish them and that we would hear you through your word. Oh, Father, thank you for the wisdom with which you have worked. We marvel, Lord, at the interesting ways that you work, even how you preserved your word and how in the Old Testament that it was the very men that were always rejected and stoned and, and, and killed and everything that whose writings ended up being part of the permanent record of your revelation. Father, this is a marvelous thing. We praise you for the way that you have worked through history. And we pray, Lord, that you would help your people today to turn back to your word. Father, there's been a great deficiency in hearing of the word and cherishing the word. And we pray, Father, that we would return to it with zeal and that we would have no other rule for our life, that the word of God would be that which is our rule for spiritual life, for our walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. thought it would be good to sing my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever and ever. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. 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 And, uh, be seated.